Welcome to Miller Kane, a true and exact history, a serialized novel by Samuel Ligon, published for the first time in The Inlander and broadcast by Spokane Public Radio. Miller Kane is made possible by Sprint and The Inlander. This is Chapter 8 of the Miller Kane podcast, which collects the final seven weekly installments of Miller Kane in a single episode. You can now listen to the novel in its entirety or read each chapter at millercane.inlander.com. Previously on Miller Kane. Miller Kane is now back to his old routine, working the aftermath of a massacre, this one bigger and more terrible than he'd ever experienced before. But he didn't seek it out. It found him. Miller and eight-year-old Carlene were traveling through Missouri when it happened, and now everyone Miller's met along the massacre circuit has descended upon Marquette, including Hefner, who has a score to settle with Miller. Over the years, Miller has comforted and profited from survivors through a variety of means, with animal therapy, spiritual profiles, and later with mediums who could conjure the dead by digging into personal data. But now, with Carlene, Miller has tapped into something else. Now, here's author Samuel Ligon. Chapter 8, Part 1. They were a week into the Cedar Creek Massacre when Hefner came out of the Liberty Diner, wiry and lantern-jawed, his big buzzed head jerking this way and that as he scanned the street and sidewalk. Miller was parking the rental car. Carlene perched on her seat beside him, prepared to jump out the second he killed the engine. Hefner looked up and down the street, walking toward Miller and Carlene. If he pulled a gun or reached for Carlene's door, Miller would punch the Hyundai up over the curb, either killing the man or buying enough space to back out of their spot and away. Everyone who'd ever been to a massacre was in Marquette, where Cedar Creek had been located before the shooting and bombing reduced it to rubble. Miller craned his neck as he inched the car back, and when he faced forward again, Hefner was looking right at him, still coming. Miller jammed the gear shift into drive, ready to blast out. But there must have been glare coming off the windshield, because Hefner kept walking right past them, not three feet from Carlene's window. Miller exhaled, settled into his seat. We're going to be late, Carlene said. We're not going to be late, Miller said, watching Hefner recede in his rearview mirror. He realized he hadn't been breathing. We have to set up, Carlene said. Hefner stopped on the sidewalk in Miller's mirror, his big head bobbing as he looked this way and that. Hold your horses, Miller said. I don't have any horses, Carlene said. Hefner had appeared in Rosedale four months ago, wanting a refund for the Cumberland Massacre. Miller couldn't remember what for. A donation to an advocacy group, maybe, or an online action fund. Definitely not for the ECHO program, which Miller never would have let him enroll in. Hefner, the type who'd demand his money back after a thousand tweets and posts and comments had been invested in animating his lost son. Not to mention the dough Miller would have had to lay out for the data. But he'd been everywhere in Cumberland. Furious, rabid, popping up at the Marriott, collaring Miller at a vigil, ambushing him in the hotel lobby on what would become his last night in town. What, he said, my money's no good. And Miller said, it's not about the money, man. And Hefter said, what's it about, man? People had a right to be unhinged, especially if they'd lost a kid. Doing what we can for each other, Miller said. He heard how ridiculous he sounded. So do something for me, Hefner said. Mrs. Aiello told me you bring kids back to life, like Houdini or something. Not that I believe in that crap. He looked at Miller, half pleading, half sneering. But my wife, she'll take whatever she can get, he said, even if it's not real. I don't bring people back to life, Miller said. Of course you don't, Hefner said, wheezing. But you can help my wife pretend. He pulled out an inhaler and hit it, his eyes never leaving Miller's, even if pretending hurts her. The program wouldn't hurt her, Miller said, but it's not for everyone. 
Who's it for? Hafner said. Everyone but me? That's not what I said. I don't want your program, Hefner said, hitting his inhaler again. I told you, it's for her. Okay, Miller said. Okay, Hefner said, clenching his jaw. Miller took a step back. Hefner balled his hands into fists and worked them open again. All right then, Miller said. All right then, Hefner said, hatred coming up hot in his eyes. He twitched and Miller flinched. You make me sick, Hefner said. Hefner made Miller sick, too. You think I want to need you, Hefner said. Survivors often had the power of repulsion, their grief becoming unbearable, but Hefner was the most repulsive survivor Miller had ever encountered, maybe because what was coming off him didn't feel like grief so much as hate and hurt and a hunger to hurt. They made an appointment for the following week when Miller would be gone. And for several months, Miller forgot about Hefner until he showed up in Rosedale looking for a refund, looking for revenge, looking for who knew what, a stench rising off him like rot. Thank God Wade had been there to lay him out. But Wade wasn't here in Marquette. Are we ever going to get out of this car, Carlene said. Miller had been so lost in thought, he hadn't seen Hefner disappear. He looked up and down the sidewalk, killed the engine. Carlene opened her door as Father Mike arrived to help them unload doll supplies into the church basement, where two moms and a dad were waiting to help set up. They'd spent three days and hundreds of dollars assembling the sewing kits, Carlene's idea following the last animal session. She'd seen lots of Cedar Creek kids in the past week, especially Fiona, and now as they arrived, she greeted them by name. Parents sat in folding chairs around the sewing tables in the middle of the room. Miller kept his eye on the door, waiting for Hefner. Carlene welcomed her students, her friends. You can make lots of things, she told them, anything, really. She held up a mermaid doll as she talked, then a cowboy with stuffing sticking through his stitches. She held up other dolls, passed them around, a man in a top hat, a stern-faced woman with blonde hair, a peapod mom with peapod babies in a pouch on her belly. She held up patterns of people and cats and horses and ducks and showed her students how to make their own patterns. Just starting points, she said. Can we make a rocket, one kid asked, and Carlene said, sure you can, Cody. Can we make cryptids, another kid asked. I don't know what that is, Carlene said. Like monsters, someone else said, but real, like Bigfoot or a Kraken. You can make those, Carlene said. You can also make Laura Ingalls Wilder or Spider-Man. Can we make real people, another kid asked. And Carlene said, sure, Michelle. And Michelle said, I'm going to make Steffi. And a woman against the back wall made a sharp sound, like a gasp or a sigh or a moan. Oh, she seemed to say. Everyone looked at her. She put her hand to her mouth, trying to hide or pretend that nothing had happened. Parents on either side reached for her. She nodded, blinking, covering her mouth. A beautiful idea, Father Mike said, moving toward Carlene. I'm sorry, the blinking woman said, her hands fluttering away from her face. It's okay, Carlene said. Father Mike touched Michelle, who looked like she might cry. You can also make Narcissa Whitman, Carlene said, handing Michelle the stern-faced doll. I have some of her hair here, which is almost 200 years old. She held up the plastic bag that had gone missing from Whitman College. My dad can tell you about her. She looked at Miller, who nodded. The case of the missing Narcissa hair solved. Come on, everyone, she said. Up here, grab a pattern, search the boxes. The children rose and ransacked, gathering buttons and yarn and fabric. There were 18 in all, maybe 25 parents, some of whom seemed to be survivors, a woman crying silently, holding hands with a man to one side of her and a woman to the other, who were perhaps lucky enough to still have living children. Miller watched the door for Hefner. Over and over, he'd seen the pain of losing a child, first his nephew, then children all over the country, parents destroyed by their children's deaths. But he'd never felt it as deeply as now, as he watched Carlene move from one child to the next, these few survivors, so many hundreds dead. 
he had an appointment to look at houses in Columbia at the end of the week, but maybe they would stay around Springfield. Hefner would leave once the massacre faded, and then they could settle into their lives. There wasn't any reason to leave now, especially since Lizzie had gone silent, though she'd come around soon enough. The door swung open. Another kid. Everything was fine. The door swung open. Apparent this time. Hefner had no way of knowing where they were. Miller was so proud of Carlene, such a sweet, good girl, helping these kids, even if she had stolen Narcissa's hair. The parents came out of their chairs to watch the kids stitch and cut and stuff and sew, some of the parents making dolls, too, the basement a hive of activity, Carlene the center of it all. Chapter 8, Part 2. That afternoon, Carlene went to Fiona's house where she'd be spending the night. Miller did not want to be away from her, afraid that Hefner would find her, but maybe she'd be safer there. They hadn't spent a night apart since he'd picked her up on the 4th of July, nearly four months ago, and he couldn't help but worry, though he knew that being with a friend, building a friendship, would be good for her. He'd met Fiona's mom, Tammy, at Laura's house the day of the massacre, and he'd met her dad and sister earlier in the week when he picked Carlene up from a playdate. They were a nice family, devastated, but lucky too because they were intact and probably feeling guilty because of it. After the doll session, Fiona and Carlene plotted their sleepover, which would be fine, Miller said. But Fiona had a therapy appointment first, and Miller and Carlene had plans to go to Baker Creek for lunch and a walk through the Pioneer Village, which meant they'd have to leave town and come back again through all the cops and press and protesters and parasites. There were already bastards on television claiming the massacre was a hoax, that the 500 dead were not really dead or had never existed, and if anyone should be massacred, it was them smearing the dead with their lies. You could hardly buy an assault weapon in Missouri or Kansas. Every store sold out, though new shipments arrived daily. Hundreds of wrecked parents and students and survivors of previous massacres were in Jefferson City demanding gun reform. Others were demanding looser gun restrictions so that everyone could conceal carry everywhere. The only way to stop the slaughter, it seemed, was complete annihilation. Protests erupted in Kansas City and St. Louis, D.C. and Chicago, New York, Denver, Seattle, Atlanta, 11 survivors immolating themselves in Golden Gate Park, and none of it made any difference whatsoever. Outside the church basement, Hefner was not waiting on the sidewalk when Miller and Carlene emerged. They loaded the car and headed toward their campsite on the other side of Springfield, nearly an hour from Marquette, where Carlene fed waffles and packed an overnight bag with some clothes and her notebook, her Barbie care clinic, and some bonnets. You did a good job today, Miller told her as they drove toward Baker Creek. Justin lost his sister, she said. Kaylee lost two sisters. Everybody lost somebody. Not us, Miller said. Not this time, anyway. My mom's mad at me, Carlene said. She's just worried, Miller said. Carlene looked out her window. Mrs. Zellman asked if we could come make dolls at her house with some other families. Benton's dad asked if we could come to the farm. They have cows and horses in a stream we can wade in like Plum Creek. It might be a good idea to take a break for a few days, Miller said. Get out of town. I don't want to take a break, Carlene said. Miller pulled into Baker Creek, an heirloom seed farm in the middle of nowhere with a restaurant featuring Asian food. It felt like a Krishna joint, except the people who worked there wore pioneer clothes. There were no prices. You paid whatever you wanted to pay, which Carlene thought should be 100 bucks. Miller recognized a group of parasites from a previous massacre at a table in the corner, attorneys who organized class action lawsuits. He'd seen people he knew all week, hucksters and grief specialists, survivors of other massacres in town to help the Cedar Creek survivors. 
Carlene filled their cups with cucumber water as the food arrived. Lo mein and salad and ginger pancakes, all of it excellent. We should pay $200, she said. Miller handed her a 50, which she deposited in the donation box. You can have the rest of mine, Carlene said. I'm not hungry. She sat across from him, flipping through her notebook. Have you ever looked in my book, she said. No, Miller said. Good, Carlene said, because it's private. One of the parasites in the corner caught Miller's eye. Do you believe in visions, Carlene said. I'm not sure, Miller said. Me neither, Carlene said, but I had one. Miller hoped the attorneys wouldn't recognize him as a massacre colleague, like Sitting Bull's soldiers falling into camp, Carlene said, but mine was children falling into snow. Or maybe it was just from the long winter. They'd been reading the long winter for weeks. Was it a dream, Miller said? Kind of, Carlene said, not really. It was just something I wrote in my notebook. The attorneys stood and made their way out, the last one depositing a 20 in the donation box. Some of the kids made dead dolls today, Carlene said, with blood on them and stuff. Oh, sweetie, Miller said, taking her hand. It all seems so awful so often, but maybe making a dead doll was a good thing, or maybe Lizzie was right that they shouldn't be here. The day after the massacre, he'd had every intention of getting them out of town, but Carlene saw the newspapers in the lobby that morning, the pages and pages of lost kids and teachers and cops, every headline of variation of 500 feared dead. She couldn't stop crying even after he got her out of town. We have to get the animals, she said, crying. We have to go to the vigil, she said, crying. We have to do something, she said, crying. Maybe they did need to go to the vigil. After all, they'd been part of it, at least peripherally. He found a campground near Baker Creek, and they marched that night in Marquette with the survivors, crying and carrying candles, Carlene there with the rest of them. Lizzie called the next afternoon, the noise on the line unbearable, then perfectly clear. Are you out of your mind, she said. Miller wasn't sure she wanted an answer. Besides, maybe he was out of his mind. I saw her on TV, Lizzie said, crying with those kids. The vigil, Miller said. Right, Lizzie said. But you're supposed to be gone already. The vigil was good for her, Miller said. No, it wasn't, Lizzie said. You don't know what's good for her. He knew more than Lizzie did, since he was with Carlene, since he'd been to dozens of massacres. But he understood why she was upset. He was upset, too. If Carlene had been on TV, Connor might know where they were now. I ran into a therapist, he said, from Scarborough. Carlene's seeing her right now. Good, Lizzie said. But then you have to leave, okay? They were hosting an animal session the next day. I know you're not trying to hurt her, Lizzie said. But what you're doing is wrong. You don't have to be there. Carlene doesn't have to be there. We do have to be here, Miller said. You don't, Lizzie said, and you don't know the damage you're doing. There's nowhere to go, Miller said. There's everywhere, Lizzie said, anywhere. And Miller said, we're safe here. You're traumatizing her, Lizzie said. As if she wasn't already traumatized. As if they all weren't. Please, Lizzie said through the rising, whistling static, do this for me. He didn't know how to say no to her. He never had. And maybe she was right, that leaving would be best. But the next day, 200 people showed up in Father Mike's basement to hold 27 cats and dogs. Miller made phone calls, coordinated survivors to drive to Kansas City and St. Louis the next day to haul more animals to Marquette, enough for everyone. Lizzie called that night. You're still there, she said, but she sounded resigned now, beaten. Let me tell her about the animals, Carlene said. Why don't you do what I ask you to do, Lizzie said. Miller handed Carlene the phone. No, Mom, she said, we do have to be here. But now they would leave, tomorrow, at least for a little while. They walked through the Pioneer Village with its jail and bakery and blacksmith shop. They hadn't heard from Lizzie in days. Maybe she was calming herself, getting used to the idea of Carlene being here. There was no way she could understand what they were going through. Miller drove to Marquette, looking for Hefner everywhere. He dropped Carlene at Fiona's, kissed her goodbye, and drove back through the massacre. 
He couldn't bear the thought of going to the motorhome alone. Chapter 8, Part 3 Miller got a table outside on the square in Springfield where it was too hot for the end of October. They'd head out tomorrow for a few days, and while it didn't seem fair that they could just leave like that, Miller knew the weight of the massacre would go with them. He opened his laptop. Nothing from George. It didn't matter. He was writing for himself now. A placard in front of the fountain designated Springfield the birthplace of Route 66, the Mother Road. Another sign mentioned the Ozark Jubilee, where Elvis had never played, but Patsy Cline had, as had Johnny Cash and Buck Owens, Kitty Wells and George Jones, Ernest Tubb, and so many others. It was possible there were people in Springfield untouched by the massacre, but unlikely. Miller ordered another coffee and started to write. Hero Villain 8, Elvis Presley and Jim Jones. This isn't about falling Elvis, full of donuts and pills, but rising Elvis, poor, weird, coming into himself, into country music and gospel and the blues, which he knew more or less were the same thing or something altogether different once combined. There's nothing more American than rock and roll, except jazz and the blues and hot dogs and murder and pills and Jesus and booze. And while we may have invented rock and roll, we also forgot about it for a while until the British reinvented it, by which point Elvis had guns in his boots and dope in his bloodstream all the time. He liked drugs and he liked women. He liked cars, costumes, badges. I wish not to be given a title or an appointed position, he told Richard Nixon. I can and will do more good if I were made a federal agent at large. He spread his credentials across Nixon's desk, a lieutenant's badge from L.A., a captain's badge from Memphis, deputy badges from Hines County, Cumberland County, Mobile, Alabama. He'd been studying communist brainwashing techniques and drug culture for 10 years, he told the president, and was ready to become a secret agent. He said he needed the federal credentials. Nixon turned to his deputy counsel. Bud, he said, can we get him a badge? Bud could get him a badge. Everybody was always getting and giving Elvis badges and drugs and sex and loyalty, and he gave them cufflinks and Cadillacs in return, plus horses and the aura of his invincibility. He was famous at 19, very famous at 20, the most famous person in the world at 21. He bought his mama a car and a house, and when he bought Graceland, he moved her and his daddy in with him. Colonel Parker is more or less like a daddy when I'm away from my own folks, he said. He called his mother every night from the road. Years later, Priscilla's father said, our little girl is going to be a good wife. But by then, Elvis wasn't much good to her. They were closest when she was 14 and he was 24, right after his mama died, when he was still rising. In high school, he was lonely and had no friends. He wore pink pants and attended the Assembly of God Church where people spoke in tongues and shivered in the presence of the Lord. No one could believe it when he became famous so fast, igniting such ecstasy in his audience. And then it seemed as if we'd always known he'd become who he was, the king, risen from the commoners. He had all the intricacy of the very simple, Marion Keisker said. Whatever you were looking for, you were going to find in him. He had greasy hair and a dirty neck. He hung around Sun Records waiting to become Elvis. His first single was Blues on One Side, Country on the Other, That's All Right, and Blue Moon of Kentucky. But not quite country, not quite the blues, or both and a little more. His manager was more interested in money than music, so money's what they made. Elvis was grateful to the colonel, attributing his success to him. Elvis would take care of the music, and the colonel would take care of the business, but business became all there was, bad movies and mediocre records and lots of money. 
Sun Records founder Sam Phillips said of meeting Elvis in 1953 that he tried not to show it, but he felt so inferior. He reminded me of a black man, Phillips said, in that way. His insecurity was so markedly like that of a black person. Elvis was a hero to most, Chuck D said 36 years later, but he never meant shit to me. He worked at Precision Tool, drove a truck for Crown Electric. Once he started recording, being Elvis became his only job, making music, then movies, except when he was in the army, when his job was being a soldier and taking amphetamines, his sergeant gave him to stay alert. He had a religious experience in the desert. Stalin's face in a cloud morphing into the face of Jesus Christ. He had lots of guns and cars and hangers-on. He had a chimpanzee named Scatter. Miller looked up from his laptop, took a sip of coffee watching people cross the square. He wanted to focus on rising Elvis, but kept slipping into falling Elvis. Sometimes it was hard to see around the badges and dope and remember how remarkable the man had been and how completely alone. Miller wanted to capture his vitality, the electricity of his best performances. The chimpanzee would be his transition to Jim Jones, who had chimpanzees of his own, one of whom was found shot in the head among the 900 dead at Jonestown. On a bench by the fountain in the center of the square, a couple sat kissing, untouched by the massacre, at least for the moment. Miller didn't want to write about Jim Jones. He wanted to peel the ridiculous off Elvis, turning him into something beautiful and dangerous again, his ecstatic movement another manifestation of the music pouring out of him. The kissing couple pulled apart, the man holding his hands up in surrender. The woman laughed and leaned back into him. Miller watched them, barely registering the movement of another man by the fountain approaching them. Something was off with the other man. He wasn't Hefner, was too small to be Hefner, but something was wrong. Miller scanned the street, the square, the sidewalks. A flock of pigeons startled the other man as they lifted in flight in front of him, the man flinching, then cocking his head to watch the birds resettle. Miller felt the walls closing in, not wanting to know who the other man was, and then knowing. Connor, the idiot, not fake Connor or imagined Connor, but actual Connor, not 50 feet away. Miller sank into his seat, face down into his computer screen. At surrounding tables, people were writing, reading, behaving themselves. Miller made himself small. He counted seven beats of his heart in his ears, and when he looked up, Connor was gone, crossing the street toward the Fox Theater. Miller exhaled, closed his laptop, and lifted himself, silent, invisible, eyes down as he walked into the coffee shop toward the door that would lead him onto a side street. He heard her voice before he saw her. Rice milk, she said, not soy. Does that make sense? None of it made sense, or it was all inevitable. Miller pivoted, fluid, silent, glancing toward her at the counter, all of them here now. And if she was inside and Connor out, the two of them were here in Springfield together. Impossible. Hadn't she shot him? Didn't that mean anything? He glided onto the patio, a shadow. The only way out was over the wrought iron fence enclosing the sidewalk tables. Miller, she said behind him. Maybe he could knock the fence over, pull his way through. Miller, she said. Connor was in front of the History Museum now, walking away. Miller, she said, touching his shoulder. He turned and she was herself, but worn down, washed out. She'd lost a lot of weight in jail. Lizzie! He said, mouth open, eyes wide, in imitation of surprise. She started to say something, but he talked over her. Oh, my God, he said, opening his arms. I can't believe she stepped into his hug. How many times he had dreamed of her coming to him this way, but not quite this way. Across the square, Connor moved farther away. Maybe it was coincidence that Lizzie and Connor were both in Springfield, in which case Miller needed to warn her, protect her, get them all on the road and away from here. Where's Carlene, she said, pulling away and looking around as if Carlene might materialize and jump into her arms. On their bench by the fountain in the center of the 
Square. The kissing couple were still kissing. Another sign that perhaps none of this was real. Miller, Lizzie said, where is she? Chapter 8, Part 4. We have to get out of here, Miller told Lizzie, everyone around them watching and listening. It's not safe. He looked across the square past the kissing couple where Connor had turned toward them, making a full circuit. Miller took Lizzie's hand and tried to lead her out, but she pulled back, yanking her hand away from him. No, she said. Where's Carlene? She's fine, Miller said, but we have to go. Connor was adjacent to the fountain now. If he held his course, he'd be on the sidewalk in front of them in less than a minute. You have to tell me where she is first, Lizzie said. But Miller didn't have to tell her anything. Showing up like she had wasn't right. Getting out of jail and failing to tell him when he'd been paying her attorney and taking care of her kid for months. His kid now, too. Miller and Carlene waiting and worrying, having no idea how long Lizzie would be away or how best to live or plan a life. He turned and walked away from her, back into the coffee shop. Wait, she said. He'd done everything he could for Carlene, walking out of his own life to protect her, to nurture her. Lizzie could not just appear after all this time, as if to say, thanks for being such a good mother and father these past six months, but her fake father and I are here for the rescue now, so you can piss off and die. Because they were no longer in this together. Raising Carlene was Miller's job now. A mother who went to jail for shooting a man, then got out without telling anyone, was not a good parent. Any judge would see that. Any child advocate. Miller pushed open the door to the street. Wait, Lizzie said. She could follow if she wanted to, but he wasn't going to be trapped by her like Elvis had been trapped by his mother, his entourage, the colonel, Priscilla, and all the other women, his loneliness and need falling deeper and deeper into himself. Please, she said, taking him by the wrist and pulling. Miller yanked himself free. We have to go, he said. Connor's back there. Miller's car was two blocks away. The motorhome, 30 miles east. Carlene, 20 miles the other direction. He was the only one who knew where she was. I know he's there, Lizzie said. Would you wait? Of course she knew. Miller walked faster. We're here for Carlene, Lizzie said. Miller had watched Connor jam a screwdriver through the window of Lizzie's front door, breaking into the house to get to Carlene. He'd seen him in Pendleton, handing out flyers calling Miller a kidnapper, a predator, when it was Connor preying on Carlene and her money. If you'd stop and listen to me, Lizzie said, grabbing his arm again, Miller jerking away again, I'd tell you what's going on. But the days of her telling him anything were over. He was different now. Everything was different. You can't just show up at a massacre and think you can snatch somebody's kid. Lizzie had to know how much she'd given up, how much had slipped away. That's why she was here, to reclaim Carlene as if Miller had taken her, when all he'd done was protect her at Lizzie's request from Connor and the world. You don't know what he's capable of, Lizzie had told him over and over. Connor on her porch with a screwdriver she was afraid he'd push into her throat. The stink of desperation on him, a junkie who'd do anything for money. Miller, stop, Lizzie said. Don't make me call the cops. He whirled on her. Call them, he said. Go ahead. You'll never see her again. He'd never struck a woman, had almost never struck a man. He'd hit Connor in Lizzie's room with a Madonna to get waffles out of the house. But he felt the urge toward violence now, something hot and hard at the core of him, radiating, wanting release, wanting to break itself into a million pieces against whatever else it could break. Listen to me, Lizzie said. No, Miller said, you're a liar. 
So are you, Lizzie said. So is everybody. So what? Can we just talk? The cops hadn't caught him yet and never would. Not here, Miller said. Not anywhere near him. He didn't want her to see his car, to be able to spot him later, but he didn't want to be on the street either or any place Connor could stumble upon them. Is she even here, Lizzie said, tears coming into her eyes. She's here, Miller said. She's safe. It would be better for Carlene to have a mother and a father. Of course it would. Let's drive, he said, and Lizzie said to her, and Miller said, away from him. He opened the passenger door and Lizzie climbed in. They'd head toward Mansfield and Laura's house, away from Marquette and Carlene. Lizzie said, I'm not with him, you know. I don't care if you are, Miller said. I need to see my baby, Lizzie said. Please? He had to get them away from people, onto a road where they could move. How long are you going to keep her from me? Lizzie said. He glanced at her and she was crying. Think of how you'd feel, she said, if you couldn't see her. That's exactly what he was thinking of. You tell me this guy's going to hurt her, he said. You shoot him. You tell me he's a junkie. But now somehow you're with him, the man who's going to hurt Carlene, and you want me to hand her over. But I'm not with him, Lizzie said. I told you that. Just wait, Miller said, until we get out of town. They needed to acclimate to each other. They could talk, but she'd have to apologize for not telling him she was out, for just showing up. She'd have to understand that Connor would never be Carlene's father. They passed the abortion graveyard, the field of the fallen unborn. Miller didn't want to look at her. It would be better if they kept moving. He drove until the storm inside him started to settle, and then he said, tell me. And he would listen, because once again, he had to figure out what would be best for Carlene, for him, for them, and he had no idea where to begin. We made a deal, Lizzie said, me and Connor. I didn't know what else to do. And then it poured out of her, everything she'd done to get from the Skagit County Jail to Springfield, Missouri, and everything she wanted to do now that she was here. But she wasn't in charge anymore. That was the first thing she had to understand. Miller was. Chapter 8, Part 5 He dropped Lizzie near the square in Springfield and made plans to meet the following day, but that didn't mean he'd show up. Back at the motorhome, there was kitty litter all over the floor, waffles pacing and meowing, demanding food. Miller fed him and did the dishes, then walked to the creek with a beer. Halloween was three days away and Carlene had not mentioned a costume. She'd want to stay in Marquette, but that wasn't going to happen. Miller had friends in Des Moines where they could stay a few days, trick-or-treat, then head east where no one would find them. He took off his shoes and walked in the cool creek water, drinking his beer. Lizzie had been calm on their drive, transactional, hollowed by the screaming, roaring, banging, and clanging of jail, not to mention her separation from Carlene. But she hadn't thought through the implications of what Connor wanted, the blood test he'd mentioned months ago. Now it was clear why he wanted it. She's not mentioned by name in the will, Lizzie said. She's only referred to as the great-granddaughter. And if she's not the great-granddaughter, Connor gets the money, Miller said. That's what he seems to think, Lizzie said. Her hair was short and jagged. She looked every one of her 43 years. Deep lines etched into her forehead, but still beautiful, especially to him. Still, something had changed between them. He had obligations now, and her calmness was disturbing, layered over delusion. But if she's not blood, Lizzie said, Connor will share the wealth. Sure he would. And I'll share if it goes the other way, Lizzie said. Everybody sharing Carlene's money. Everybody taking a piece of her. Lizzie had to be crazy not to see the threat. And why shouldn't she be after all that time in jail? Campbell's looking at the will, she said. So are Connor's attorneys. Attorneys? Miller said. More than one? It doesn't matter, Lizzie said. I just want my life back with Carlene. 
This was the delusion, that they could get their lives back. If the will was settled in Carlene's favor and the blood test proved Miller to be her father, no way would Connor walk away from that money. Whatever Lizzie had agreed to, Carlene would have to agree to as well, and so would Miller if he was her father. In which case, Connor might get nothing, a possibility he must have considered. The fight would go on and on, or maybe something would happen to Carlene before the will could be resolved, Connor arranging a car accident to kill her, Carlene swallowing poison or choking on a chicken bone so that Connor would become the sole heir. Miller didn't share this worry with Lizzie. After being locked up for months, her last few days had been a frenzy, calling Connor, overcoming her revulsion, which wasn't easy, she said, to be in the same room with him, negotiating while he pretended to pity me. But I knew what I was doing, and I was pitiful. But I made the deal, and he dropped the charges because it was only about Carlene for me. But why would you give him anything, Miller said. I just told you why. But what if he is her father, Miller said. What difference does it make? The thought of Connor hovering around Carlene made Miller sick. All Lizzie wanted was her daughter back. Miller understood. But Connor was as dangerous as ever, maybe more so since Lizzie seemed incapable of seeing the threat in him, even as she remained repulsed, scrambling to SeaTac and across the country with him stuck to her, the way he was going to stay stuck until the blood test was done. But the blood test wouldn't tell them anything, or whatever it told them wouldn't make any difference. I did it because you wouldn't listen to me, she said. So it was all Miller's fault, everything, the shooting, her bad marriage, Connor coming after Carlene. I couldn't have her here any longer, Lizzie said. I told you that. As if working the massacre made any difference when the shooters were everywhere. Not that they were working the massacre. They were here to help. And they were helping. Or they were here because there was nowhere else to go. And because they had to be here still. So you're just going to hand her over, Miller said. And Lizzie said, why do you pretend not to understand? It's a blood test. That's all. And if she's his, Miller said, he'll keep her as close as he can. Is that what you want? Connor weaseling into her life, your life, trying to control her and her money? I appreciate what you've done, Lizzie said. I really do. But this is none of your business. Of course it's my business, Miller said. And Lizzie said, it's not. Carlene is my business, Miller said. Listen, Lizzie said. Whatever happens, Connor and I will share the money. None of this matters. Everyone will get plenty. It's not yours to share, Miller said. It's not yours either, Lizzie said, and I don't care anymore. I just need to see her. I need to hold her and take her home. She needs that too. Lizzie had every right to see her daughter under certain conditions. Miller drove them back to Springfield and told her they could meet in town the next day, but that Connor couldn't come anywhere near them. Lizzie agreed. Miller would be watching, he said, and if Connor appeared, they were gone. He didn't tell her he and Carlene might not show up at all if something felt wrong. That's what he had to figure out, how to protect Carlene if Connor came for her in the open or if someone else came for her with a gun, say. He finished his beer in the creek and put on his shoes. Lizzie didn't realize that Carlene had a home with Miller and Waffles, here or wherever they'd land. Maybe they could raise her together. He'd get a place in Skagit County, and she'd stay with him half the time, and they'd drive to Mesa Verde in the summer and Jamestown and Cape Cod. But he had to know she was safe first, that Connor couldn't hurt her. That's what Lizzie couldn't guarantee, now or in the future, the very fact that she'd made a deal revealing how poor her judgment had become. Still, Miller wouldn't keep Carlene from her mother, unless there was no other way to keep her safe. His phone rang, Carlene calling for Miller's crust recipe. Are you having a good time, he asked, a stupid question. Yes, she said. They should have had Fiona here in the motorhome, away from the dead kids. He gave Carlene the crust recipe and told her he'd pick her up in the morning. Did my mom call, she said, and Miller said she did. She sounds good, too. I'll tell you about it tomorrow. He had no idea what he'd tell her. He had a lot of thinking to do. 
He spent the last night of his life imagining a future with Carlene in which everyone was okay somehow. Carlene's Notebook We made pie and hamburgers and jello and waxed beans. You would have hated it all, Mother, as would Narcissa. Fiona and Tammy asked where you were. Gone, I said, and they looked down. I didn't mean it that way, but I didn't know what else to say. I know you don't want us here, but we have to be. The dead kids are here, and so are the ones that were left. I told Miller that, and he said, do you feel dead? And I said, no. And he said, do you feel like you owe them something? And I said, I don't know. We all owe them something, he said, not just you. You don't have to do everything, he said. I'm not, I said. You can just be a kid, he said. I've seen Miss Ellen two times. It's okay to cry, she said. It's okay to be mad. Look for the helpers, you always said. You meant police officers and firefighters and teachers if I was in danger. They're everywhere here, and I'm one of them. I still cry, but not like before. Who did this, I said, and Miller said, we don't know, or we know, but the papers won't say. It's like they want to erase him. We went to Mass twice and the New Day Church once. I want to go every day, but Miller says we have to rest. Fiona and I made dead dolls and took them apart. It felt wrong to make them and wrong to take them apart. I know it was wrong what I said about you. I want to tell Father Mike. He puts his hand on my head to bless me. First at the animal session, then with the dolls today. I can feel it run all the way through me. That's why, Mom. Chapter 8, Part 6 Carlene was wearing her yellow bonnet when Miller picked her up, she and Fiona shaking mason jars of milk on the patio out back. They're making butter, Tammy said. The plan was to meet Lizzie at the coffee shop in Springfield, but it was still too early. There's pumpkin bread in the oven, Tammy said, if you have time. Encouraging words were all over the kitchen, framed in needlepoint, burned into wood, spelled out with refrigerator magnets. Hope, gratitude, dream, believe. Tammy stood at the counter measuring dry ingredients into a bowl. Miller imagined other words bent out of rusted metal. Quit, surrender, most things haven't worked out, the great Junior Kimbrough title. Maybe he wasn't the right person to raise Carlene. Maybe all he was good for was keeping her on the road until her mom arrived, worn out from jail. Carlene said you might be settling here, Tammy said. Had he ever really thought that? The place was a disaster, a ruin. Carlene would want to stay, but that wasn't going to happen. There's nothing left for us here, Tammy said. She pulled the bread from the oven and placed it on a cooling rack. We're going to Wichita, she said. Blake's got people there. Smart, Miller said. I don't know if it's smart, Tammy said. Leaving isn't quitting, Miller said. Maybe it is, Tammy said. It's hard to know what's best for the girls. A giant wall clock ticked above Miller's head, surrounded by a wooden rooster and three wooden chickens. Everything in Tammy's kitchen might have come from the same catalog. Carlene said you've done this before, Tammy said. Shootings, I mean. Yes, Miller said. My nephew... The girls burst into the kitchen. Try this, Carlene said, opening the jar of butter and handing it to Miller. Fantastic, he said. The bread's too hot to cut, Tammy said, but she cut it anyway, and they smeared it with butter and jam. Then Carlene gathered her things from Fiona's room, everyone hugging at the door. When they finally got outside, it seemed likely they'd never see Tammy and Fiona again. Miller told Carlene about her mom as they drove, not knowing how to prepare her or if he should prepare her. What if Connor was lurking and they had to bolt before seeing Lizzie? 
It didn't seem possible that Carlene would be gone from him, that she'd fall into Lizzie's arms and fly home, out of his life. The better plan would be the three of them driving back to Washington in the motorhome, Carlene and Lizzie sharing his bed and Miller sleeping in Carlene's loft, almost like practicing for the future. Maybe Lizzie was right about the deal with Connor. But Miller would have to see him first, make a determination based on how desperate he seemed. Your mom sounded good, he told Carlene, and Carlene said, is she coming home? Maybe, Miller said, probably. Carlene untied and retied her bonnet strings, pulling the brim lower over her eyes. Are we going back to Mount Vernon? Maybe, Miller said. Is that what you want? I don't know, Carlene said. I thought we were supposed to be here. Maybe we're done here, Miller said. Or maybe mom could come when she gets out. She could help too. Sure, Miller said. He parked the car and they walked onto the square. No sign of Connor. Where are we going, Carlene said. And Miller said, to the fountain. Taking her to Lizzie felt like losing her, but maybe it didn't have to be that way. I could go back to school, she said. And Miller said, exactly. A woman on the bench beside them scattered crumbs for the pigeons, the birds lifting and resettling as people walked by. The fountain burbled behind them. Miller put his arm around Carlene, and she leaned into him. The massacre was everywhere here, but would soon begin to fade, even though so many had died close by. Marquette would never recover. It would be best if the town were bulldozed and buried. Are we still looking at houses Friday? Carlene asked. If you want to, Miller said. I do want to, Carlene said. But that's in Columbia, Miller said, a few hours away. Carlene loosened her bonnet and let it fall down her back. Miller kept his eyes open for Connor, but wanted to be fully aware of Carlene, fully here for her, because any second... And then Carlene gasped. Mom! she cried. She looked at Miller, her face radiant. It's Mom! Across the square, Lizzie was approaching a table in front of the coffee shop. She put her hand to her forehead to block the sun, looking for the sound of Carlene's voice, her other hand holding a cup and saucer. Mom, Carlene cried. She jumped from the bench. Wait, Miller said. Carlene, Lizzie said. She put her cup on the table and opened a gate in the wrought iron fence, moving toward Carlene. Watch the street, Miller said, taking Carlene by the hand. Mom, Carlene cried, dragging Miller. Up on the curb, he let her go, and she ran to her mother, Lizzie opening her arms to take her in. Miller stayed back, checked the square. Still no Connor. Carlene said something into Lizzie's neck. I know, Lizzie said, holding her. I miss you so much. Miller, Lizzie said, rising from her crouch with Carlene. He approached and they embraced, Carlene still attached to Lizzie, Miller putting his hand on her head, Lizzie pulling him in hard, the three of them together right there on the sidewalk. I have to tell you about the butter, Carlene said. Yes, Lizzie said, leading Carlene through the gate toward her table. Tell me everything. Lizzie sat and Carlene crawled into her lap. Miller had texted her last night and this morning, had talked to her on the phone before picking up Carlene, and she assured him that Connor would not be here, that he had no idea where they were meeting. Miller believed her. She ran her hands over Carlene's back. I love your bonnet, she said. And Carlene said, Miller got it for me. A cowgirl hat and a Barbie clinic, too. Wow, Lizzie said. Mom, Carlene said, pushing herself closer to her mother. Carlene, Lizzie said. Mom, Carlene said. Yes, Lizzie said. It seemed wrong to be so close to them when they only needed each other. I'll get us a treat, Miller said. He kissed Carlene's head, Lizzie's, too. Be right back, he said. As he turned to walk away, he saw Connor across the square, leaning against a wall by the fountain. Miller's heart kicked, but it wasn't fear this time. It would be good to start whatever was going to happen between them. He looked at Carlene and Lizzie holding each other, then walked through the tables, onto the sidewalk, across the street. Connor slouched by the fountain, his pure idiot self, skinny, scraggly, lighting a cigarette on a summer day in October. He needed to understand that Miller would be watching from now on, that Connor wasn't going to bully anyone ever again. The pigeons fluttered from in front of the pigeon lady as Miller walked by. 
Connor did not seem to be looking at anyone. Maybe he was a junkie. Blank, pathetic, oblivious. Miller was no more than ten feet away when Connor looked up and saw him, jerking upright. You, he said. The last time they'd seen each other, Miller had brained him with a Madonna and was driving away, Connor running onto Lizzie's lawn, screaming, I see you. Now he flicked his cigarette and planted himself. Stay out of my business, he said. We're here for her own good. Sure you are, Miller thought, the smell of rotten meat and ammonia rising around him. You don't scare me, Connor said. Miller had nothing to hit him with but his hands, but he wasn't going to hit him unless he had to. He was going to tell him how it was going to be from now on. The smell came on stronger. Connor's face changed, shifting from sneer to surprise to fear, as if Miller had frightened him just by looking at him, as if he finally understood. No, Connor said, holding his hands up and starting to turn. Miller should have done this months ago. Then Connor crumbled. It didn't make sense exactly, Miller's mind behind what he saw and heard, Connor crumbling at the same moment the gunshot cracked, Connor reaching for his leg as he fell, blood soaking the fabric of his jeans, as if Miller was seeing the shot Lizzie had taken him down with in her front yard all those months ago. Why'd you shoot me, Connor said, smoke and gunpowder mixing with rotten meat and ammonia. Miller turned and Hefner was there with a long revolver, the smell rising, pigeons flapping and people screaming. They looked at each other, the moment more intimate than any that had passed between them, as if they were agreeing to something, coming to terms. Someone shouted, maybe Connor. Then Hefner discharged a bullet into Miller's brain, blowing off a piece of his skull like a Kennedy doll's. The warmth of it and the cold. The speed, a sky so blue it was purple, clouds swimming around Rainier, and down below, the rolling green of the Palouse. It's like an ocean of wheat, Carlene said. Relief ran through him. She was out there somewhere with Lizzie, across the square. They were all going to be okay. But he was falling, everything bright and crackling. It wouldn't be so hard to raise her, to give her the chances she deserved. They both loved her, and she had waffles and her dolls and her own big heart. She probably saved the whole damn world. There were more shots as the cops took Hefner down, Miller certain, as he died, that Carlene was right there with him. Chapter 8, Part 7. Hero Villain 9, Miller Kane. Without Miller, there would be no Kane Foundation, no 400 billion pound gorilla about to break free, to fight back, to take Senate seats and assault weapons. And whatever we accomplish, whatever change we make, we make it in his name and in the name of every massacre victim this land has seen. Money will be most of it because we understand who we are and what we're up against. Money is speech, the Supreme Court said. Money doesn't talk, it swears, Miller Kane said, quoting Bob Dylan. He was often quoting somebody, though I didn't realize it then, and didn't know which hero villain said what for years. Our speech will be louder than anyone's, nearly half a trillion dollars worth, convincing senators and congresspeople, governors and presidential candidates, judges and local legislators to do the right thing. And if they don't do the right thing, we'll talk to someone who will. Miller would not have thought this cynical. He was romantic, but he understood that money was more fundamental to our national character than Jesus even. The religious zealots who arrived on the Mayflower having been financed by the Company of Merchant Adventurers of London. If you want to know what God thinks of money, Miller said, just look at the people he gave it to. Dorothy Parker said that first, but for years I thought Miller had. He loved his country and hated how we failed so consistently to live up to our ideals. But he believed, and he made me believe. 
The speech I inherited attracted other speech from a software developer, a talk show host, an industrialist, a media mogul, various merchants, investors, hedge fund managers, old speech and new from patriots who believed we could be better than a nation of murderers and people waiting to be murdered. I gave Connor my allowance until I was 18 when the money became larger and I could give him a little more and keep a little for the foundation. He still lives on it somewhere like a child. And while there's not much good in him, the Kane Foundation would not exist without his family and what they took and ultimately gave to me. Miller would hate his name on the foundation, but he didn't get to choose. I did. And he's dead, so it doesn't matter. I've met survivors he helped, people whose money he took, some of whom have contributed to the foundation, one of whom shot him in the head. He never pretended it was Cammie talking, Bree Dirksen told me, but it was her. There was a spiritual dimension there. He couldn't have known what he knew without a spiritual dimension. No one but her could have known the things she said after she died. Narcissa didn't mean to be awful, he told me at the Whitman mission. Custer's wife loved him, he told me at the Little Bighorn battlefield, so we know that somebody did. Jesse James was an asshat, he told me at Zerelda's farm. Several men in our tour group had stars and bars on their belt buckles or caps and gave Miller dirty looks as he told me about Quantrill's Raiders and Bloody Bill Anderson. Horrible people, he said, ideologically bankrupt. They were only in it for the murder, and their methods were horrifying. She doesn't need to hear that, the tour guide said, and Miller said, of course she needs to hear it. So do you. Besides, her mother's a James, which means she is too. She has a right and an obligation to know her own story. Is my mother really a James, I asked after the tour guide walked away. And Miller said, isn't that her name? Yes, but is she, am I related to him? I'm not sure, Miller said. Who knows? He might have added that it didn't make any difference, that we all have something corrupt in us from the past, some of us more than others. But it wasn't all villains. He knew how I felt about Laura, and he loved her as much as I did, because she tried to tell the truth, he said, even when it made her look petty or selfish or small. He tried to tell me the truth, too. You have to at least try to see what happened, he said, and what's happening now. But he lied, too, about my mother shooting Connor, about things that made him money on the circuit, and about anything he thought would hurt me if I knew it too soon. I would have done the same for him. Avery flew into Kansas City after the murder and met us in Springfield. The cops helped him locate the motorhome near Baker Creek, and Waffles was okay. We got a crate, and they let me bring him on the plane. I don't know how anyone survives a massacre. Avery kept the motor home until the following summer when he showed up in Mount Vernon. It still smelled like waffles and had all our stuff in it, books and games and Miller's guitar and dozens of dolls. I hadn't made one since Cedar Creek, but I made one that summer with Miller's barrel chest and belly and a sparkle in his eye like he was about to say something someone would regret, but probably not him. Right after we visited Little Bighorn, we went to a canyon in Utah on BLM land, the most remote place I've ever been. We drove miles over rutted roads to get there. A stream ran through an abandoned Mormon orchard, and the walls of the canyon were covered with pictographs I copied into my notebook. Wispy, long-bodied people with wings or horns or antenna, plus goats and deer and lizards, beautiful images from pre-Columbian America before it was America. I was heartbroken about Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse and Black Buffalo Woman and the Indian baby Laura had wanted. I didn't want any of it to be true and made Miller tell me everything he knew over and over, which he did, about Sand Creek and Wounded Knee, the American Indian Movement and Leonard Peltier, the ghost dance and boarding schools, all the treaties signed and broken but he also took me to those petroglyphs. We stayed the night near that orchard, far from artificial light except our own. 
I'd never seen stars like that, so many, so bright, and Miller taught me what I believed were constellations until I realized years later that he was making them up, that there wasn't a Muddy Waters or John Brown or Sacagaway constellation, though I saw them that night. He saw them everywhere, great Americans, failed Americans, and he made me see them too. And he sang about them and taught me the songs. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, he sang. I've been a moonshiner, he sang, 17 long years. When first unto this country, he sang, a stranger I came. Ain't no more cane on the Brazos, he sang. Puff the magic dragon, he sang. His truth is marching on. That summer went on and on. Even as we got farther away, I believed I would be okay, and I was. The massacre was just so awful, of course, but he let me help, taught me to help, taught me that the only way to get better was to help. I didn't think I'd ever be okay again. Avery was there and my mom and they got rid of Connor and we talked about the money and what to do with it. It would be a long time before I got most of it. Enough time to go to school and more school and more school studying history like Miller and Avery. Enough time to gather the other money, all of which would become the Kane Foundation's speech, which would say, you can stop these massacres and you don't have to lose any amendment in stopping them. You'll only become better. He didn't like rich people, but he liked to spend money. And it wasn't really the people he didn't like. It was the idea of them taking too much, part of our corruption. He liked to be on the way somewhere, to a rodeo, the Corn Palace, the Keys, Plymouth Rock. He loved my mother, but she didn't love him as much as he loved her. I can't blame her. You can't help who you love. Look at Libby Custer. I have everything he wrote when we were together, the hero villains, plus so many of his thoughts about us, his struggle to figure out what to do with me, how to love and raise me. He never lost hope, even though there was so much horror. He believed in the American experiment, and if he didn't fight as hard as he might have or should have, I'm fighting now because of him, because of myself. I know how proud he'd be of me, as I am of him. He was a good man, a good American. He was my father. You've been listening to Miller Kane, A True and Exact History, a novel by Samuel Ligon, published in weekly installments in the Inlander with archived audio at spokanepublicradio.org slash Our theme music is by Indian Goat. I'm your producer, Chris Messini. If you missed an episode of Miller Kane, you can now listen to the novel in its entirety on this podcast or read the full text of the novel online at millercane.inlander.com. the time she had turned to leave yeah I was already